0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Intelligence from the Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman, and in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Most countries closed schools for at least a little while during the pandemic. Some closed them longer than others. And recent models show that the damage from extended closures may be even worse than many feared.
0: And in plenty of industries, a green energy transition wouldn't be so hard. In aviation, especially the long haul kind, it looks all but impossible So if you have to put hydrocarbons in the tank, why not ditch fossil fuels and get bacteria to make them? First up, though. Mario Draghi has, for the second time in a week, offered his resignation as prime minister of Italy. He arrived at the presidential palace this morning Where he met in private with President Sergio Mattarella to deliver his decision, already announced in the lower house of parliament.
2: Alla luce del voto espresso ieri sera dal Senato della Repubblica, chiedo di sospendere la seduta perché mi sta recando dal Presidente della Repubblica per comunicare le mie determinazioni.
0: Those parliamentarians gave him a lengthy round of applause. <laughs> Mr. Draghi is a popular figure in Italy. Well-known steady hand who led the European Central Bank through the eurozone crisis.
2: Grazie per questo, naturalmente. Certe volte anche il cuore banchieri centrali viene usato qualche volta.
0: In Parliament, he said even central bankers have their hearts touched sometimes. For Super Mario, as he's widely known, holding together Italy's national unity government, an ideological jumble sale of left and right, proved too much. And his second resignation
3: attempt will probably stick. Mario Draghi has been deserted by three of the four main parties supporting his broad coalition. John Hooper is our Italy and Vatican correspondent. It began, this was on July the 14th, when the Five Star Movement failed to support a motion of no confidence that was attached to a key piece of legislation. That was when Mr Draghi first went to the president and said, it's over, I'm going. But the president rejected his resignation on the grounds that, in fact, he had won that motion of confidence. On July the 20th, he went back to Parliament, to the upper house, the Senate, and again asked for a motion of confidence, which paradoxically, in the end, he obtained, but with only the support of 95 out of 321 senators. During the day, two right-wing Parties in his government, the Northern League and Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia party had in effect deserted him. What they did was exactly what the leader of the Five Star Movement had done beforehand, which was to present Mr Draghi with demands that they knew in advance he could not possibly accept.
0: So, this is the coming apart of a coalition that we we talked about last year being quite a, a hard one to wrangle. What is it that's made it come
3: unstuck? The tensions within this government have been evident for some time. It spanned a huge spectrum from radical left on one side to hard right on the other and Inevitably, there was legislation that Mr. Draghi was trying to put through, some of it requested or demanded by the European Commission, which was truly unpalatable to some of those in government. On the left, The Five Star Movement, which straddles left and right, but has a largely progressive alignment, there was real misgiving about the extent to which Mr Draghi was supporting the poorest in society and protecting them from the rise in the cost of living. On the right, you had misgivings about his programme of liberalisation because much of the constituency of the Northern League in particular is made up of the people who would be affected by deregulation. And just for a
0: bit of context here, what are the big challenges that Italy is facing right now that Mr Draghi is seemingly now not well-placed to fix?
3: All of this is taking place at the worst possible moment. Italy needs to push through reforms in order to get the vast amount of money, 200 billion euros, to which it is entitled from the EU's post-pandemic recovery fund. It is facing a cost of living crisis. It is facing, like the other countries in Europe, the energy crisis provoked by the war in Ukraine. All of this against a background what's more of doubts about Italy's ability to grow in future, and fears regarding its vast public debts of around 150% of its GDP. Italy is in a very, very delicate moment. The last thing it needs is political instability.
0: But political instability, once again, it has. What do you think that means for all these problems that it faces?
3: Well, it will play out as we go forward to an early election. The likelihood now is that we will have a vote in October, possibly at the end of September. But given the very cumbersome mechanisms that Italy has for electing and installing a new government. We can't really expect the government to be active until the beginning of November. Now that raises questions about firstly the ability of parliament to approve a budget for 2023 and secondly the ability of the new government or the willingness of the new government to pass the reforms that the EU, or rather the European Commission, is demanding of it. Because what the polls show is that the likely outcome of an election will be a government led by a party that has its roots in neo-fascism, has a Eurosceptic past, this is the Brothers of Italy, And it would be allied to the Northern League, which has got deep reservations about some of these reforms, and Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia party.
0: And so, what does that mean for Europe more broadly?
3: All of this is going to send tremors through capital markets, it's going to worry the Commission in Brussels. But it will certainly delight one person, Vladimir Putin, because Mario Draghi has been a firm supporter of Ukraine's right to defend itself. And uh, one can imagine, as one parliamentarian said after the vote, that the champagne corks will be popping in the Kremlin.
0: Thanks very much for joining
3: us, John. My pleasure, Jason.
1: When the pandemic hit in early 2020, schools around the world closed their doors. The pivot to remote teaching got underway, and home learning resources were quickly rolled out.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Ed Petrie from CBBC. Are you ready for your letters and sounds phonics lesson today?
1: While schools have reopened in many places, millions of kids are yet to go back. And we're getting a clearer picture on the impact that's having. The results? should worry everybody
2: good data is starting to show just how massive the impact on learning of school closures around the world has been mark
1: johnson covers education for the economist
2: meanwhile it remains the case that many millions of children have not yet been back into a classroom two years after schools first shut
1: and you say this is happening to children around the world where are we seeing this most acutely
2: Well, almost every country in the world closed school buildings in the spring of 2020, but there have been enormous differences in how long they've kept them shut. So schools in Europe were all reopened more or less for most kids by September 2020, though there were disruptions after that. Schools in America had to wait quite a lot longer to open their doors. But by far the biggest failures are in Latin America and South Asia, where during the first two years of the pandemic, some 80% of school days were disrupted in some way or another. And alarmingly, there are still places where schools are not open yet. So in the Philippines, maybe two-thirds of children have not been back to the classroom, and they have 27 million school pupils. And in places such as Mexico, schools are technically open, but there are still many children who are preferring to learn remotely than to go back to the classroom.
1: Mark, what have children been doing if they can't go to school?
2: Well, so remote learning has not been a huge success over the last two years. Indeed, the data that's now emerging two years on suggests that in many cases it's been even less effective. Than people feared. And that in some places, you know, such as in Mexico, the data starting to show that children effectively learnt nothing at all while they were remote learning. And that's the case for places that actually tried to offer distance education. But, you know, in much of the world and in much of the poorest world in particular, there was effectively no effective effort to provide education. Indeed, in the Philippines, they officially shut down schooling for the first seven months while they worked out how to provide any kind of remote or distance learning.
1: So it sounds like with kids out of school, a lot of them are basically not being educated at all. What sort of impact do we know that's having so far?
2: Yeah, so now that most of the world's children have returned, we're getting better data about what the costs have been. So in one recent synthesis of studies looked at something like 30 plus studies from about 20 countries, most of them rich ones, which is where most of our good data comes from so far. And they found that children in those countries were on average you know, between three and six months behind where they would usually have been. But the far greater problems are elsewhere in the world. Now, mostly, we still only have simulations to rely on. But some recent efforts drawn up by McKinsey suggested that children globally could be about eight months behind, they usually would be, and that in middle-income countries, which uh, had some of the very longest closures, they could be nine to 15 months behind. And what does all this mean? Well, the World Bank has made some guesses, suggesting that the share of children who can't read by the time they finish primary school could rise from about 57% before the pandemic to 70% now. So there was already a problem in a lot of these countries, in lower middle income countries, which have 90% of the world's children. There was already a problem with children not learning as much in the classroom as they should have done and often going through their school years without really learning how to read. And now it could be that 70% of children don't meet that benchmark of being able to read a simple sentence by the time they are 10 years old.
1: In your previous answer, it sounded as though you said or or implied that the problem was worse in middle-income countries than poor countries. Why is that?
2: In most rich countries, school closures were kept short at least by global standards, and those countries did a better-than-average job of providing distance learning, even if we now know it was still fairly ineffective but many middle income countries did a much worse job of providing distance learning they also kept schools closed for a long time longer and we're talking about some very populous places like bangladesh mexico brazil india the philippines so they're seeing enormous losses they already had lots of children who were only just scraping over these milestones of for example being able to read by the time they are 10 and As a result of these 12, 15 months that they've lost, they're now struggling even more than they were before. In the world's poorest countries, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, those places did a better job than many middle-income regions of opening schools reasonably swiftly after the pandemic. And indeed, in those places, alas, a lot of children were not learning very much in their classrooms in the first place. But that's not to talk down the immense problems that school closures have caused there because of course being out of school the cost is not only lost learning in a poor place it is the loss of a place that is safe so enormous damage to children's well-being quite apart from this question of whether they learn to read or not
1: so mark it sounds as though especially in poor and middle-income countries and in poor communities in, in in wealthier countries there are two things happening number one kids aren't going back to school yet, and number two, when they are, they're not learning much when they're there. What can be done to change those
2: things? Well, the first thing that's needed right now is that every child needs to be back in a classroom learning full-time as they were before the pandemic, unless there's an absolutely essential reason why that's impossible. And uh, although it feels to many of us that In rich countries, this problem is over. The the evidence suggests that it continues in much of the world. Now, after that, there needs to be huge effort put into catch-up learning of some type or another. The most recent data suggests that maybe a quarter of countries have got no strategy at all for catch-up, that perhaps as many as half of them have a a strategy that's not national in scale, that's just quite itty-bitty and probably not adequate The ideal is that interventions put in place to help children recover some of the learning they've lost from school closures during the pandemic can actually lead to reforms that could make schooling in these countries immensely more effective in the first place. So, for example, lots of schools in poorer parts of the world uh, have to struggle through curriculums that are really dense and packed with stuff that the children haven't got a hope of learning. And the result is that teachers often speed through numeracy, they speed through literacy, and they don't get the freedom to go back and help children that don't acquire those fundamental skills right at the very start when they're young. And those are the kinds of things that if you were to be optimistic about this, we may find that politicians find the will to resolve. But all that at the moment still looks a very long way in the future.
1: If you were given a magic wand that gave you the ability to fix one thing about the world education system everywhere, one thing to sort of roll back the damage that's been done, what do you think is most important? What would you do?
2: The single most important thing at this instant of time is to make sure that every child is back in school and learning. After that, there has to be every effort made to make sure that children don't leave school without being able to do basic numeracy basic literacy. And that sounds so banal, but it's not what happens in so much of the world, and that needs urgent attention.
1: All right, Mark, thanks so much for stopping by today.
2: Thank you.
0: It's no secret that flying burns up a lot of fuel and therefore releases a lot of emissions. Aviation only accounts for about two and a half percent of greenhouse gas totals. But the thing is, for the most part, flying just doesn't lend itself to a green energy transition. Hydrocarbons really are, in the current world anyway, the only thing for the job. So the question is how to make greener
4: hydrocarbons? Finding a green alternative to jet fuel is really difficult because fossil fuel-based jet fuels are kind of miraculous.
0: Abby Bertix writes about science for The Economist.
4: They're super energy-dense, meaning that they pack a lot of punch in a very small mass and volume. And for long-haul flights, there's not really a way around using jet fuel. But a team of scientists have figured out a way to use bacteria to make a greener alternative to jet fuel that is also just as energy-dense.
0: How does that work?
4: So first you have to start with... What makes jet fuel so energy dense? So petroleum-based jet fuel is a hydrocarbon. There are lots of hydrogens, carbon bonds, but the real key to the energy density is these things called cyclopropane rings. So normally carbon bonds with four other atoms and they're all happily spaced apart. They're nice and comfy. But in these cyclopropane rings, the carbons are arranged in a way that makes them uncomfortable. They have very acute bond angles compared to normal, and that basically makes them like a bunch of super dense springs waiting to be unleashed. That's where the energy comes from. In the 1960s, Soviet scientists used these cyclopropane rings to design a special rocket fuel called Sintin, but their making of Sintin was really, really expensive, and it also involved fossil fuel feedstock, so it is not continued today.
0: Okay, so what connects these cyclopropane rings then and bacteria who can make jet fuel?
4: Well, it just so happens that there's this common soil bacterium that's just booping around in the soil, chewing on sugar, and part of its normal metabolic process, it outputs a substance called jazamycin, which looks strangely like jet fuel. It is an antifungal molecule chock full of cyclopropane rings. So this cyclopropane ring structure is produced in nature from the bacteria. But scientists wanted to see if they could do that in a lab in a controlled way. The scientists found the enzymes that make the super energy-dense cyclopropane rings, and they tweaked them, they added some extra to the bacteria, and they were able to create this sort of assembly line. Inside of the bacteria, you put in sugar and you get out jet fuel.
0: But getting a single or a few bacteria to to create a few of these rings is not really going to solve the aviation fuel problem, is it?
4: Not yet. That is one of the big issues that still has to be solved. It has to be scaled up significantly, and it has to be made at a cost that is reasonable. And the scientists hope that these problems are surmountable. After all, not long ago, solar cells were considered exotic and magical. And now today, they're as cheap as chips.
0: So aside from getting many, many, many more bacteria to do this, what what stands in the way of this being the next jet fuel?
4: It also has to be adopted by the jet fuel industry. It has to be used as jet fuel. That means it has to be cheap. And one huge issue right now is that airlines have massive tax exemptions and subsidies as it relates to fossil fuels. And altering the incentives to favor green fuel would significantly help this endeavor in terms of cost. Another approach might be to involve America's Air Force, which has expressed interest in green aviation fuel in the past. If you involve the government, then there's a guaranteed market, unconstrained by your standard commercial considerations, and it would allow for scaling up without the fear of being crushed by fossil fuel-based competition. Switching to green jet fuel would go a long way towards helping the aviation industry lower their contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. There's a long road ahead towards reaching scalability and towards reaching the market, but the chemistry at least is solved.
0: Abby, thanks very much for your time.
4: Thank you, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you
0: can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.